Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, fight to the end. Despite calls for his resignation, Israel's Prime Minister digs in after three hostages were killed by Israeli soldiers. Israel is claiming they will essentially fight the war till the very end. The United States is calling for a more targeted operation, surgical strikes, elite combat units. Plus, RWJ nurses in New Brunswick officially agree to a new contract after nearly four months on the picket line. Also, Congressman Frank Pallone announcing a new bill to combat sudden cardiac arrest in kids, especially among student athletes. The hope is that more individuals will be diagnosed and treated before they fall a victim to sudden cardiac uh, arrest. And decreasing violent crime in Jersey City. Mayor Fulop touting his city's efforts to keep deadly violence at bay. We are moving in the right direction and we are arresting the people doing this and there are less shootings and homicides and shots fired in those communities. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Monday night. I'm Raven Santana and for Brianna Venozzi. Just this weekend, three Israeli hostages were mistakenly killed by their own country's military, despite one of them waving a white flag when confronted by the Israeli soldiers. The killing sparked outrage across the globe, forcing U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to travel to the region to put public pressure on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government to be more precise and outline their strategic objectives in Gaza. Looking at the civilian toll it is taking, in addition to the three hostages, 1,200 Israelis have been killed and more than 18,000 Palestinians since the conflict began. Meanwhile, many Israelis are questioning what's taking place and the war tactics being used and are now calling on Netanyahu to resign. For that and more, I'm joined by Associate Professor of Politics at Rutgers University Camden, Michael Boyle, who's an expert on terrorism, U.S. national security policy and Middle East politics. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the headlines from the weekend. Three Israeli hostages were mistakenly killed while one was holding a white flag. This horrific act has no doubt altered the perspective of this conflict, no matter what side you're on. What was your reaction to this moment? So I, I think it raises a couple different political consequences. The first, my first reaction was that, that this was going to increase pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu, because there's already been a movement from within outside Israel suggesting that the Israeli government needs to do more to prioritize the release of hostages as opposed to fighting the war in Gaza. And I think this is going to sharpen this, a sense that Netanyahu maybe isn't doing as much as he should. The second is going to raise real questions about the rules of engagement that the IDF is operating with in Gaza. And what we know about this particular incident was that the three hostages came out, they waved a white flag, they had removed their shirts to make sure everyone knew there was no explosive on them, and they had spoken in Hebrew to, to call the surrender. The idea that, that, was the, that they were then killed is going to raise some real questions about, well, all right, what are the rules of engagement the IDF is operating with? And 
what are they doing to rescue hostages and are they being maybe as careful and discriminant as they should be so i think it's going to place pressure on netanyahu to release more hostages it's also going to raise some questions about whether israel's campaign is maybe as surgical and precise as they say it is well on the topic of raising questions, now Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is in Israel meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, demanding he more clearly define his war objectives and milestones, right? But the Prime Minister is vowing to fight to the end. So what does the next stage of this conflict look like? And is there any chance of a real ceasefire? Right now, there is a possibility of a ceasefire if the pressure over the hostages grows on Netanyahu. And we know that, for example, the CIA director, William Burns, is negotiating via Qatar with Hamas for another short-term ceasefire that would release more hostages. So there is a possibility of, of a ceasefire on the horizon. Whether it's a durable ceasefire is the second question. I think at core, what we're seeing with Secretary Austin coming to see the Israeli government is a difference over what this war should look like and what the day after should look like. Right now, um, Israel is claiming they will essentially fight the war till the very end. The United States is calling for a more targeted operation, surgical strikes, elite combat units, but less sort of what I describe as main infantry fighting. The second question is who controls Gaza the day afterwards? And the US has made it very clear that the Palestinian Authority is the only actor in town that the U.S. will back to govern Gaza afterwards. And over the weekend, Benjamin Netanyahu essentially said, we'll never let that happen. And so right now I see between the United States and Israel is a real sort of parting of the ways of the views as to how the war is conducted and what the post-war looks like. And I'm not sure that's going to resolve without a confrontation. Well, Michael, we know there are calls even from Israelis for Netanyahu to step down, saying enough is enough. So will he? I don't think so. And Netanyahu is the great political survivor of Israel. He has been at the very top of Israeli politics for over 20 years. The idea that he's simply going to give up is not, in fact, actually the case. Actually, I think you can read a lot of what he's doing recently as about his own political survival. That is to say, positioning yourself as the person who's going to defy the Americans, fight the war to the very end, and who might even block a Palestinian state on the grounds that they don't want another October 7th terrorist attack to happen again. It's kind of part of his electoral strategy. He plays to the right by saying, I'm the guy who can stop this from happening again, and I'm the guy who will defy international pressure. So I think that's part of what's going on at the moment is that Netanyahu is making that play, and increasingly it's looking like, he, looking like he's playing politics with the hostages, and he's playing politics with the war, which is making him even more deeply unpopular at home and increasing the level of pressure that he has abroad. Michael Boyle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. No amendments will be made to the state's paid sick and family leave program that some advocates claim will leave behind more than one million New Jersey workers. The decision comes as protesters rallied at the state house, urging lawmakers to revise the bill before the final vote. Some of those desired revisions by advocates included extending protection that will cover these additional workers who they say will now be left behind from accessing job protected paid leave. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas is at the state house with the latest. Joanna? Yeah, Raven, a bill before the Assembly Appropriations Committee today would expand the requirements for employers to provide paid leave to their employees. Now, current state law only requires that an employer with 30 employees or more provide extended paid leave, but this bill would move that number down to five employees. But it brought pushback both from the business community as well as advocates who want to see those workers' rights expanded to everyone in the state. Paid leave is a critical component of ensuring that our workforce can work and to make sure that family members can balance the needs of caring for loved ones. 13 states have paid family leave. 
Uh, all of those states have job protection at varying degrees based upon the size of the employer. So as mentioned, we currently have uh, job protection only for workers um, that are employed by a business with over 30 employees. And so imagine for a moment paying for a benefit um, that every single worker pays for, but they are afraid to use out of fear of retribution from their employer. We support the bill only with amendments, and the amendments are really critical because without them, we leave about a million workers behind, and those workers are disproportionately women workers, uh, they're lower income workers, they're more precarious workers that actually need job protection so that they can be able to afford to take their paid leave benefits when they need, and that they are contributing to through small payroll taxes. But the New Jersey Business and Industry Association says this creates an onerous burden on small businesses in the state. If you have few employees on payroll, they would have to hire temporary workers, they'd have to train new employees, and then keep them on payroll while the employee is out on leave. With a business as small as five employees, this could be unduly burdensome and really difficult to do business in New Jersey. I'd also like to note the legislature also recently passed a bill um, called Temporary Workers Bill of Rights, which um, um, would actually make it more difficult to hire temporary workers in New Jersey. That perspective was shared by several Republican members of the committee. This bill will apply specifically to small business. This bill specifically, actually micro business. You're going to add to this program 170,000 that were not currently in the program. Taking care of a child, taking care of a loved one. Those are good reasons to want to take leave. And for the mom and pop florist shop, who only has three employees and can't afford to have somebody out for 12 weeks, for another small employer who has six employees and can't afford to lose their bookkeeper for 12 weeks, they have pressures too. And when you say it's fundamentally unjust for someone not to be able to take those benefits, you're not taking into account what's fundamentally fair to the people who employ the employees. The bill did pass out of committee. It now needs to make its way all the way through the Senate in this lame duck session. In Trenton, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Jersey City claims it's winning the war on crime. That's according to Mayor Steve Fulop. Today, touting the city's accomplishments alongside public safety officials and the state's attorney general, announcing the monumental decreases in violent crime for 2023, including the lowest homicide rate in the city's history. And that's not just at a state level, it's on a national one, as the city's homicide rate is now amongst the lowest of largest 100 cities in the United States. Still, there's just one problem, as senior political correspondent David Cruz reports. The data isn't available to the public. This is supposed to be Jersey City Mayor Steve Phillips' public safety week. Tomorrow, the mayor, who you may know is also a candidate for governor, will wear his candidate's hat to outline his public safety ideas to voters. Today, he was the mayor reporting to residents about the city's crime rate, which he says is down starting with homicides. You see a steady trend downwards from the mid-20s to this year, it's actually, unfortunately, had a homicide this weekend, a stabbing, um, so that number is actually 10, but uh, it still represents the lowest homicide rate that this city has ever seen since records have been kept. Despite some minor statistical upticks in robberies and aggravated assaults, the mayor says his administration's multi-pronged approach of enforcement, detective work, and partnerships are getting results. That's something U.S. Attorney Phil Selinger was on hand to reiterate. Every homicide and senseless shooting 
uh, is a tragedy and is one too many. But uh, these are hard-earned reductions, and all of us, uh, as well as our partners who are not here today, the Hudson County Prosecutor's <coughs> Office, the Drug Enforcement Administration, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, FBI, and many other uh, uh, federal agencies are working very hard to keep the community safe. Officials here are actually much more excited than the U.S. Attorney's understated delivery might suggest. This is great news, says the mayor, but this is also an administration that has played a bit of hot potato with statistics, keeping them off local sites and saying they report them to the state, which is supposed to post them on state sites. But those numbers haven't been updated since 2020, so officials admit you're going to have to take their word for it. But we post at the end of the year like we post all of our other data, and we submit it as the state requests. So I don't know what, what the information is that you want on a weekly basis on Monticello Avenue, but we think we provide the information like we do everything else where people can see what's happening from year to year and the progress that's making. Importantly, I'll go back to what I said. Crime does not decrease in a straight line. It goes up and down <coughs> week by week. And we think this gives you the best picture overall for what crime looks like in Jersey City. So, sure. But the public can't bet the information that the city reports to the state. As the public. Yeah, I'm just going to say no, they can't. They can't bet it in any city because those reports, uh, there's a lot of confidential information on victims' names, sex crime victims, juveniles. We can't just post everything on the public. We never have, neither has anyone else. Uh, the only thing I'm going to add to that is I have stood up here when crime was up. So anybody who's insinuating that, like, oh, I'm making crime go down, I have stood up here when crime was up in almost every category, and I've explained why. And in addition, I've been here for 11 years, and I'm waiting for the first person to to produce a crime that was not reported correctly, recorded correctly, and sent to the state, the federal government correctly. So I'm confident with these numbers. Crime stats are complicated. One victim of crime represents everyone in a community, and when the victim is an 18-year-old like the one who was killed last week, statistics, no matter how encouraging they look on paper, don't tell the whole story. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. After walking off the job back in August and forcing a strike that lasted four months, nurses at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick finally have officially agreed on a new three-year contract. The hospital and United Steel Workers 4200, the union representing some 1,700 nurses, announced they reached the new contract late Friday. The nurses had been fighting for better salaries, health benefits, and sick time, but the sticking point had been patient-nurse staffing ratios. The new deal outlines staffing standards and offers a more collaborative process for nurses and hospital administrators to address staffing issues and concerns moving forward. The hospital admitted the strike had significant economic consequences, forcing them to shell out more than $120 million for replacement nurses. In addition to better staffing ratios, the nurses were able to increase salaries and cap insurance costs. An estimated 2,000 young people under the age of 25 die each year of sudden cardiac arrest. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And now a Jersey lawmaker wants to combat the deadly condition through legislation. Congressman Frank Pallone made the announcement today at Edison High School, where one of the school's football stars tragically died from sudden cardiac arrest back in 2009 during track and field practice. Ted Goldberg reports. This hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is real. It's a silent killer. 
For families who lost children to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, their devastating stories have common themes. We had given the team all of the physicals, everything that was required as a football player. We had just had a physical two weeks before, and we were joking with the doctor that I never see John. Earaches, flu, whatever. Unfortunately, regular physicals missed any sign of this deadly heart condition. Him and his peers, the track team, were running, and suddenly, tragically, Patine collapsed and died. John was playing basketball with his friends at our parish in Chatham, New Jersey, when he collapsed, and unfortunately, efforts to revive him were unsuccessful. The families of Katim Sherrod and John Taylor Babbitt hope no one else has to suffer like they have. So they're backing Congressman Frank Pallone and his bill that would require leaders and health groups to coordinate efforts to teach the public about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and ways to treat it and prevent it. Had they done an EKG, there would have been some abnormal signs there. There was an AED in the gym, but it was on top of the coat rack in a box, and no one knew where that was. It requires the Secretary of Health and Human Services to coordinate with the Centers for Disease Control and national patient advocacy and health professional organizations to develop educational materials and resources on cardiomyopathy for public awareness. And this includes the symptoms, the risk assessment, training and life-saving procedures, and implementing a cardiac emergency response plan uh, in, in the schools. Pallone announced the bill at Edison High School, where Sherrod passed away in 2009. The gym still has a mural honoring Sherrod's life. What we're talking about today primarily impacts younger people and a lack of awareness about, um, about this uh, disease, if you will, or condition that we're discussing today. And so if we can do more in those categories in terms of awareness, in terms of education uh, and response, uh, we can prevent uh, a lot of things from happening. Pallone has been trying to pass bills like this for more than a decade and simply create awareness. The hope is that more individuals would be diagnosed and treated before they fall a victim to sudden cardiac uh, arrest. I think it's a great initiative that's going to save lives. And if only one student's life is saved, I think every dollar behind it, every piece of effort is going to be worth it. According to Pallone, this bill is pretty similar to previous versions of a bill that Pallone introduced into past Congresses but couldn't get enacted into law. Pallone says the only differences this time around are minor and technical, and they're designed to help this bill get through a divided Congress. In Edison, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, Governor Murphy and Princeton University, in collaboration with the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, announced plans to establish an artificial intelligence hub in New Jersey. The initiative, paid for through state and private funding, hopes to bring together AI researchers, leaders, and startups to advance research and development, promote an up-and-coming workforce, and collaborate with New Jersey's many colleges and universities. It's all a part of Governor Murphy's commitment to make New Jersey a leader in AI. In October, the governor signed an executive order establishing an AI task force to study AI technologies. Princeton and the state will co-host a one-of-a-kind AI conference to kick off this initiative in April 2024. Turning to Wall Street, here's how the markets close today.
New Jersey is still drying out tonight after being drenched by a coastal storm that delivered flooding, heavy rains and strong winds early Monday morning. The storm knocked out power for nearly 50,000 people statewide with Monmouth County and the Skylands region experiencing the most outages. Utility crews were working throughout the day to restore power. Morning commutes were a mess as flooding closed roads statewide and half of NJ Transit rail lines experiencing delays. At least one school district, Homedale, canceled classes because of the flooding. It was an exceptionally wet storm for December, fueled by unseasonably warm air and ocean temperatures. Most of the state got at least three inches of rain, with some areas seeing even more. A rain gauge at the Charlottesburg Reservoir in Morris County registered nearly five and a half inches. In an effort to make sure no child goes hungry, the Trenton School District is opening up its second food pantry. The goal of the expansion is to support local families through resources currently offered through the community-based program Mercer Street Friends. In our continuing series, Hunger in New Jersey, Melissa Rose Cooper has more on the program, which helps address food insecurity and nutrition concerns for school children and their families. One of the goals of a school is to meet the academic needs of our students. But that becomes increasingly difficult if we are unable to meet our students' basic needs. Basic needs, like making sure students have something to eat, a challenge Victor Farnath, principal at Trenton's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School, wants to eradicate. So he's joining community members and leaders to celebrate the opening of this food pantry and resource center as part of a partnership with the organization Mercer Street Friends, which aims to provide necessary services to students and their families. Mercer Street Friends has been able to provide access to counseling service, create attendance initiatives for our students and parents to provide weekend food for all of our students they wouldn't go hungry. The pantry at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School is the second one to open. The first opening just minutes away inside Gregory Elementary back in September. There is no better expression in my view of the community school movement than a food pantry and a family resource center. This is what we do. We try to remove barriers to learning so that the wonderful staff, leadership, and teachers right here at MLK can do their jobs and teach our children. We are just so thankful for our partnership with Mercer Street Friends um, and really the start of a movement to eradicate the thought the feeling and the words of I'm hungry from any student. So this is a start of great work that has been in the makings and in the plannings and is already in one school and we are hoping to continue it. Um, but we as a community need to be collaborative to make sure that there is never any child in the city of Trenton that needs to utter the words, I'm hungry. Local leaders applauding the pantry and the positive impact it will have for students. Knowing that our children don't have the concern of being uh, worried about whether or not they're going to have food or not, knowing that their, God, their minds can be fed here in the school, but they also can get nourishment to take back home. It is a challenging situation where you don't know whether or not you are going to have enough to eat. And this helps to take away one of those barriers. We have a lot of uh, food deserts, and folks don't realize it because they're pockets that we have. And knowing that the Mercy Street Friends recognizes that, and they're not just talking about it, but they're doing actually something about it, makes a difference. This is only the beginning. We have a goal to become a true community school. 
The students that walk our halls today will become the leaders outside of these walls tomorrow. And we wanted to help them and their families in any way possible. This pantry will stand as a symbol of compassion, unity, and commitment to helping one another in Trenton. Mercer Street Friends is planning to open a third pantry early next year, and eventually each one will be available for both students and the entire community. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. That's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Raven Santana for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you right back here tomorrow night. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. NJM Insurance Group has been part of New Jersey for over a century. We support our communities through NJM's corporate giving program, supporting arts and culture related and nonprofit organizations that serve to improve the lives of children, rebuild communities, and help to create a new generation of safe drivers. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered. I'm very grateful that I'm still here. That's me and my daughter when we went to celebrate our first anniversary. With a new kidney, I have strength. They gave me a new lease on life. I'm still going everywhere and exploring new places. Nobody thought I was going to be here. Nobody. And I look forward to getting older with my wife. That's possible now. We're transforming lives through innovative kidney treatments, living donor programs, and world-renowned care at two of New Jersey's premier hospitals. They gave me my normal life back. It's a blessing. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.